Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights. We're excited to be back in the city. It feels good to be home. It's always been one of my ambitions for Trinity Heights to contribute in some way to the preparation and training of future leaders. The church needs a new generation of leaders and so when I look around it's very exciting to know of several friends from our congregation who are now pursuing theological training. Leisure Z is getting his master's in theology at Chicago University and for the next couple of weeks, we'll be hearing from two more friends from Trinity Heights who are currently both in their first semester of seminary, I remember those days, exploring a form of vocational ministry for themselves. Dave Herman is at Fuller Theological Seminary, and Brandon Epting is attending the London School of Theology. Now, the good news is that both of them are far more thoughtful than I ever was at their stage in training, and I've enjoyed many good conversations with each of them. So I think we're in for a treat, as they're going to deliver the first two messages in our Advent series, which we have titled, The Descendant. Hi, the Heights Church family. I hope you all are doing well, and that you are excited about the Advent season, even though this one is very different from ones we've experienced in the past. Um, so this Advent reading is from Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 6, and then verses 16 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. What are the deepest longings of your heart? What do you want more than anything right now? Sometimes we don't know, and then we find out when we're in a difficult time. And this year, the pandemic has put us all under an extra measure of pressure. Our prayers have questions like, where am I supposed to go now? What's going to happen to us? And what does our future look like? All of these questions speak to our core desires. We want to belong. We want ourselves and our families to be safe. We want to know that everything is going to be okay. Belonging, safety, hope. These longings that we have are the same longings that the people of Israel had at the time that Matthew was writing his gospel. How can we belong in a land that's not our own, ruled by a brutal empire? How can we be secure under this economic oppression and violence? How can we hope when centuries after we were exiled, we still don't see God in charge. 
I believe these longings are what Matthew has in mind when he retells the story of Israel in his genealogy. As a fellow Israelite, he knows Israel has been praying for centuries, what is going on? So Matthew uses the mechanism of the Jewish genealogy to bring up the questions and hint at the answers that these characters were wrestling with all along. So what could we possibly get out of reading a genealogy, which may be the most boring genre in the Bible? If you're familiar with the genealogies in the Old Testament, you, they might read like a bibliography in the back of the book. You're saying, I don't know most of these people. I don't see how they're relevant to the main story. I mean, I assume they're important, but really overall, I don't get why this is here. So first, Matthew is playing along with what genealogies are meant to do. Then he completely turns it upside down. First, we're going to look at what genealogies are meant to do. They're meant to function like credentials to establish someone's reputation. Matthew is giving Jesus credentials to show us from he's from good stock. So we have big, powerful men in the foreground here. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We got the patriarchs. We got Judah, David, all these kings. We have big, powerful men here. His genealogy is organized also in three big sections. We've got the first section organized under Abraham, the second under David, and the second leading up to the Messiah. So with his genealogy, Matthew isn't just showing that Jesus is on par with these other greats like Abraham and David. He's showing that the Messiah, Jesus, is the one that the whole genealogy is pointing to. So what are readers thinking when they hear these characters, Abraham, David, and the promised Messiah? Well, God took Abraham from his homeland, his family, his society, his gods, everything he relied on, and he promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations. Abraham's story was about belonging. Who am I? Why have you brought me here? Who are my people? Where do we go now? Where do we belong? God took David from being a nobody shepherd, made him Israel's first good king, and promised his son would rule on his throne forever. David's story was about safety and security. What's going to happen to us? Will our kids be okay? Will God abandon us? There are hints from Moses to the Psalms and the prophets that the Messiah would restore Israel. The Messiah's story is one of hope. He answers questions like, is God still mad at us? How can we know you're for us? How can we be restored? How do I know that our future will be okay? So, the Jewish readers expected the answers to these questions to be something like, we belong because we're in Abraham, we're secure because we're in David, and the Messiah will restore Israel to her prominence once again. As an ancient Israelite, how could you not champion this genealogy? Yeah, this is our story. Yes, these are our longings. Yes, God will help us because we're children of Abraham, descendants of David, and we anticipate the Jewish Messiah who will restore everything. That is why God will help us. Also, if you'll indulge my nerdiness for a bit, uh, the Jewish people were also especially aware of the play of numbers at this time. So you may have noticed that the three sections of 42, sorry, the three sections of 14 generations each come together to 42 generations. And Matthew does that intentionally because 
to, to get this structure, he actually skips a few generations. Well, 42, uh, you math whizzes may know that 42 is 6 times 7. So 6 times 7, if you're familiar with scripture and the role that numbers play, 6 is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day, humanity. 7 was the number of completion. On the seventh day, God rested at the end of the creation week. So 42 is the way of Matthew messaging to his audience who are much more aware of, of how numbers work. That's, that was a normal way to interpret text than we are. So Matthew is saying in here that here we have the complete, number seven, human, number six. Now here's something else that the Greeks and Hebrews at that time were also interested in gematria, which assigns each letter a number. For example, if you add up the numbers to the letters in Nero Caesar, you get 666, right? You may have heard that from Revelation. So the letters of the Hebrew name David are 464, for D, V, D. 4 plus 6 plus 4 equals 14, 14 generations. So when Matthew organizes three generations of 14, he's whispering to us, David, 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 saying that Jesus, implicitly, is the son of David. So that's really interesting. This is like the, uh, the official genealogy. This establishes Jesus' reputation in a really profound way. But as we look closer at the genealogy, we find that Matthew is constantly, intentionally subverting everything he just set up. He could have just stopped there and we would have had an impressive genealogy. Jesus is the one in whom our desires for belonging, security, and hope are met. In other words, Jesus is the one in whom the Abrahamic promise is fulfilled, the Davidic promise is fulfilled, and the promise of the Messiah is fulfilled. Jesus is the one who will restore us. So Matthew says, yes, that's all true, but we're forgetting someone. What about the non-Abrahams and the non-Davids in Israel's story? the people on the margins, the people who don't get to belong in the genealogy's official story. Matthew intentionally adds people who don't need to be there. He hides their own names in plain sight, like when a parent hides Easter eggs. They're plastic, they're fluorescent, they're bright. Parents want their kids to find Easter eggs. In the same way, Matthew wants us to spot these strange additions to his genealogy. It's like Matthew gave the official story, and now he leans in and he whispers, now here's what's really going on. Matthew tells the insider's story of Israel inside his genealogy, mostly by including what an official genealogy shouldn't include. So uh, if you're familiar, Jewish genealogies are supposed to work by naming pretty much only men, uh, direct father-to-son relationships, and ideally only Israelites. Instead, here's what we have in Matthew's subversive genealogies with all those additions. He includes a lot of women. He includes five different women, the disreputable ones too, mind you. He mentions brothers twice, including brothers that don't exist. We'll get to that. He includes Gentiles. He couldn't just skip those generations like he skipped the other ones. And he disregards biological descent, sometimes going to an adopted son instead of a biological son. 
So, all right, Matthew, what are you doing? You had something good here. What better way to establish that Jesus is the true Messiah than show that he's a descendant from one of the biggest heroes of Israel's history? You don't need to include that other stuff. I mean, Gentiles, prostitutes, David's biggest sin, our biggest embarrassment of how God disciplined us by letting Babylon destroy Jerusalem and take us into exile. I mean, yeah, it happened, but you don't need to highlight it. So first, we're going to be looking just briefly at the women, the Gentiles, and the brothers that Matthew includes and see what he's trying to do here. So the women that Matthew mentioned includes Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, uh, Bathsheba, which he says Uriah's wife, which we'll get to in a little bit, and Mary. So each of these women were outcasts according to Jewish genealogy, Jewish decency, or the law of Moses. They're not the people that you would want in Israel's official story. So you may remember uh, Genesis 38, Judah denied Tamar's marriage to his son, Shelah. Uh, in response, Tamar took on the role of a prostitute and ended up becoming pregnant by Judah. Rahab was a citizen of Jericho, which God commanded to be destroyed. And as a Moabite, Ruth was supposed to be excluded from the congregation of Israel to the 10th generation, according to Deuteronomy 23. Uriah's wife committed adultery. Mary became pregnant out of wedlock. Now, I know you might be saying, but wait, 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 wait. Uh, we, we have to clarify their stories, and we will. We'll do that right now. All these women demonstrated remarkable faith in the face of death or life-threatening circumstances. So with Tamar, upon uh, the, the time that Judah discovered her pregnancy, he ordered her to be burned alive. Then Tamar revealed that uh, she was more righteous than he when she revealed that he was the father of her child. Rahab of Jericho would have been destroyed along with the city if it weren't for the intervention of the Hebrew spies that she risked her life to assist. Ruth she left her land of idolatry, Moab, to devote herself to Israel with Naomi. She boldly approached Boaz for marital, legal, and material protection to save herself and Naomi from a life of destitution. The law of Moses commanded adulterers to be put to death. Bathsheba also uh, requested that David declare Solomon as king after Adonijah, after Adonijah, his son's kingship. So she feared for her death that often accompanied ancient coronations. So she escaped death by what the law said about adultery and escaped death because she was afraid that her nephew, who was taking the kingship, uh, may have put her to death too. Escaped death twice. So also Mary, knowing that she would face social persecution, Mary quietly accepted Gabriel's pronouncement of her miraculous conception. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. So as the saying goes, they're not the heroes we wanted, but they're the heroes we needed. Okay, let's go on to the Gentiles. Matthew includes Gentiles. Okay, Matthew, what are you doing? We're trying to convince people that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and you keep blowing it for all of us. So the Gentiles Matthew mentions are Tamar, Zerah, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah. Okay, we already covered the women here, so let's go to Zerah, right? Zerah, you might not remember him so much. He's just a, tucked away a little there in Genesis. So the only story we know about Zerah occurred at his birth. He was a twin, right? You might remember the other famous twin, Jacob and Esau. So Zerah was a twin. As a twin, he put his hand out first when he was being born, 
the midwife put a scarlet thread around his wrist, and then Zara's twin, Perez, sort of won the struggle to be born first and became the firstborn. So by including Zara, I think Matthew is saying the kind of person that God notices is the kind of person who got overlooked. And Uriah, Uriah is a Hittite, he's not Jewish, but as Bathsheba's husband, he refused to go home to her while his fellow soldiers were in battle. And that showed that he was more righteous than David, like Judah did with Tamar. David's response to Nathan declared Uriah more righteous than he. So what do we learn? God sees the ones that the official story overlooked. Now, finally, Matthew mentions brothers. Now, stay with me here. This gets really interesting. So at first, Matthew mentions Judah's brothers. Now, why mention Judah's brothers when most of them, as the readers know, got taken away by Assyria, never to return in the 8th century BC? Yeah, way to put salt on the wounds, Matthew. Why do you have to remind us that part of the story? Unless Matthew's saying that somehow Jesus will incorporate all of Israel, or create a new restored Israel, somehow bringing back that which has been lost. Also, here's what's more interesting. Matthew mentions Jeconiah's brothers. So Jeconiah was uh, one of the kings of Judah who was in charge when Nebuchadnezzar came and took many people from Jerusalem to live in Babylon, took them away into exiles. Now, here's what's really interesting. Jeconiah had no brothers. Matthew mentions that Jeconiah had no brothers. Jeconiah had no brothers. Now, you might be looking and say, okay, maybe Matthew made a mistake. But no, why would Matthew mention a king's brothers when it just it's so clear in the Bible that he didn't have any? Matthew is doing something deeper. It's because as fellow Israelites, the readers that Matthew's writing to are all Jeconiah's brothers. They're all descendant of Abraham. They're all Jewish. They're all responsible, collectively responsible for going into exile. We are all responsible for what happens to us as a nation. Matthew is touching the wound of failure and showing that all are guilty. He upturns the official story at every opportunity. In Matthew's subversive genealogy, he's not dressing up the story of Israel and reputation. He's destroying it. The official story doesn't work anymore. What happened here? Matthew, you've destroyed the entire purpose of the genealogy to give credentials to the person that you're introducing. And I imagine Matthew responds, yeah, I blew up the paradigm. I burst the wineskins. Instead of the official story, the story that makes us look good, I wanted to tell the subversive story, the story that shows how God has been moving all along. Because I wanted to show that when we've been told God only works this way, that he's already been working behind the scenes and the people we failed to acknowledge. Matthew says, you've wanted me to focus on men, but exemplary women deserved attention. You've wanted me to ignore our shady past, but I won't let us forget what happened to the lost tribes of Israel. I won't let us forget that we collectively disobeyed and deserved the exile. You've wanted me to ignore the Gentiles, Matthew says, but I can't. They've often outshone us. We haven't seen that God has been working all along in the people that we failed to notice, the people who didn't make it into the official story of the genealogy. So with his subversive genealogy, Matthew revisits our longings for belonging 
safety, and hope. Remember we said before that according to the Jewish mind, the people who answered those longings were Abraham, David, and the Messiah. Well, yeah, the official story says this, but the subversive story says something quite different. The subversive genealogy is saying that the people who belong are those who have the faith of Abraham, not necessarily his descendants. The people who are secure are those who possess the faith of David, like the faithfulness shown in Uriah the Gentile. And the hope that we have for Israel is not its national restoration to its former glory, but a new community, a new kind of Israel, one that incorporates people of faith from among the nations. Jesus makes sense of all our history, Israel's history, from Abraham to David to the exile to now. Jesus is the one who makes the outsiders belong. Jesus prevails when biological descent does not secure us. And with the promise of the resurrection, Jesus restores when all hope is lost. In Jesus, the outsiders belong, the insecure are safe, and the despairing have hope. God not only answers our questions, but he challenges and changes our questions. Our questions were, how can we belong? How can we be secure? How can we have hope? God answers those questions here. But he also changes our questions to, whom else can we make belong? Whom can we make secure? And to whom can we offer hope? We know that Jesus reached out to the Samaritan woman. He reached out to the Roman centurion. He reached out to the duplicitous Zacchaeus, those who were on the outside. That same Messiah who gave Israel hope 2,000 years ago is still the Messiah today. So what does that mean for us? Who are the outsiders that we can make belong? Who are the insecure that we can make safe? Who are the despairing to whom we can offer hope? Matthew's genealogy isn't just an answer to our longings. It's also a call to action so that we can fulfill the longings of those outside the church. What can you do this week? Amen.